Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman, and I'm privileged to be the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. I want to welcome those of you who are joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today and welcome back our returning viewers. We are now two weeks into the premiership of Naftali Bennett, the first new Israeli prime minister since 2009. As the Bennett-Lapid government gets underway, new opportunities will arise in the U.S.-Israel relationship and with Israeli-Palestinian ties, while many of the same challenges that existed under the last government persist. Through four Knesset elections and now a critical moment of political transition, Israel Policy Forum has consistently been a go-to source for credible analysis and top-notch resources. I encourage you to tune into our podcast, Israel Policy Pod, listen to recordings of previous briefings, and read the weekly Koplo column. Before we begin, I want to thank our supporters. Our work, including today's program, is made possible by you. If you do not yet support our work, please do so by visiting www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash support. Now to today's video briefing in which we will address the all-important subject of Israeli foreign policy under the new government. Coming amidst Foreign Minister Yair Lapid's first trip abroad since taking up his new position, our discussion is especially timely. We are fortunate to be joined today by Lahav Harkov, diplomatic correspondent for the Jerusalem Post. Lahav, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. As I mentioned earlier, we are in the middle of Lapid's first meetings outside Israel since taking up the position of foreign minister earlier this month. Over the weekend, he met with U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken in Rome. What were Lapid's and Blinken's respective goals and what was the readout from that meeting? So, you know, I think that the there, there were a number of issues on the agenda, and certainly Lapid's team, but also Blinken, made sure to emphasize that there were different things going on. Um, but I think that it, considering the timing, that Iran was a very big issue. Um, this came just a few days after the sixth round of indirect talks between the U.S. and Iran to return to the Iran deal uh, wrapped up. Um, the seventh round is not starting this week, or at least not expected to start this week. So there's a little bit of time in the interim. Um, and this government has sort of shifted its policy when it comes to the Iran deal. Um, it still very much opposes the Iran deal for all the same reasons that Netanyahu did, um, which I could get into if you want me to. But uh, overall, Netanyahu's policy was not to engage with the deal at all because he felt, as this government also feels, that it um, legitimizes Iran getting a nuclear weapon um, in 2030 with the restrictions of the deal run out. Um, But that engaging with the the deal in any way, talking to the U.S. about it, um, you know, anything other than stonewalling would mean that Israel is in turn legitimizing that deal. The new government says, well, we've seen Netanyahu you know, with work on that assumption in 2015, and the Iran deal still happened. We saw him working on that the past few months, and it hasn't stopped the U.S. from negotiating to return to the deal. So we have to look at reality as it is and try to mitigate the damage. And so now Israel wants to discuss with the Biden administration what can be done to ensure Israel's security, to better enforce the restrictions of the deal, um, which sanctions are more important, you know, to remain on Iran, um, as opposed to the ones that the U.S. will remove um, if it returns to the deal. 
and so Israel's already sent experts to Washington to discuss that. And I think that that was a big matter on their agenda. Um, the Palestinians also came up. Reconstruction in Gaza following last month's operation is an important issue for the Palestinians. Um, there's also the issue that um, the Americans want to reopen their consulate to the Palestinians in Jerusalem, uh, which is something that former Prime Minister Netanyahu has had an issue with. Um, Lapid and, and Prime Minister Bennett have not really said anything about it yet. Um, I think that it's something that will have to be further negotiated and discussed. Um, in the end, Israel has to approve it. But I think that if the U.S. really insists on it being in Jerusalem, the issue is that it's in Jerusalem, which Israel recognizes, you know, considers all of Jerusalem as its own sovereign territory. So why is there like sort of a, a consulate to a another entity inside sovereign Israel, right? And I think that that issue, that sort of paradox exists for Lapid and Bennett as well. Um, but I think if the U.S. really insists, then then maybe it will. The, they'll allow it to open in the end. That would be my my guess, my speculation. But they've not actually said anything about it yet. So those are some of the issues. Okay. Um, also in Rome, Lapid met with his Bahraini counterpart Abdul Latif bin Rashid Al Zayan, and is visiting the UAE today. The UAE and Bahrain normalized ties with Israel last year. What are Bennett's and Lapid's aims with regard to Israel-Arab state normalization? So I'm actually speaking uh, from Abu Dhabi right now, from my hotel. Um, and I'm, I'm here uh, with Lapid. I came on the plane um, following his trip here. Um, the, you know, this government, they're strong supporters of the Abraham Accords and of trying to continue normalizing ties between Israel and Arab states. And on, honestly, I think any, any conceivable government that would be brought in in Israel, you know, would have continued to support that. Uh, and so Lapid is here, I think, to show that, you know, yes, Netanyahu was, was very instrumental in making these normalizations happen. He really put a lot of emphasis on it and effort over the years, um, but that this new government is also invested in it and wants it to continue. And so that's why Lapid is here. You know, it's, it's only two weeks after he became foreign minister. Um, and the Emiratis on their part seem to really be emphasizing it. And they want to really focus on the bilateral ties. So they, the Israeli journalists, you know, we all are asking them questions about Iran, about the Palestinians. And they are like, let's talk about our trade deals. Let's talk about tourism. Let's talk about scientific research. Let's talk about how UAE Israel ties benefit. Emiratis and Israelis, um, which I found, which I found interesting, right? Because uh, I mean, for us journalists, we're the most interested in, you know, these big diplomatic issues. Although I think the average Israeli is probably interested in all those things that the Emirati diplomats were talking about, sort of how this can uh, benefit Israel economically um, in people's and, you know, help people in their everyday lives. Um, so Lapid also, you know, is sort of following in that vein, even though, um, you know, it's a, Iran is a big issue here. Um, shared goals in defense are a big issue here. Um, but it's it's a big issue with the UAE and Bahrain. It's it's less of an issue with Morocco and not really an issue at all with Sudan. Um, and so I think that if Israel wants to keep expanding normalization, um, then they do need to focus on things like the economics and tourism, because those are things that, you know, a broad range of countries could benefit from by normalizing ties with Israel. So you, you touched on this, but I want to ask you a little bit more about the significance of Lapid's visit to the UAE, especially 
coming at this time, just two weeks in uh, into his term as foreign minister. And uh, what, if anything, do you see from having been there? Um, what, what is there any progress? Did they agree on anything new? I mean, can you just sort of give us maybe a, a snapshot of what the visit has been like? Well, um, so the visit started, we landed in the sort of VIP terminal of the Abu Dhabi airport, which is very, um, it's, it's, it's um, you know, it has this like local flavor to it. It's not just like a, a bland airport. Um, it's done in the very sort of Arabic style of architecture. It looks almost palatial and they had the red carpet out and there was a minister there to meet Lapid and it was all very VIP fancy state visit. Um, from there, we went to the Israeli embassy in Abu Dhabi, um, which is in the Etihad Towers, which are like these iconic, this cluster of towers in Abu Dhabi. That's like the icon of the Abu Dhabi skyline. So um, the Israeli embassy is in one of those office buildings. Um, and um, there was a ceremony there sort of dedicating, you know, a ribbon cutting ceremony for the embassy, even though technically it's been there for months, but they had a ribbon and they cut it. Um, and the Chabad rabbi came and put up the mezuzah and it was very nice. And there was also the Emirati minister of culture came there and she spoke about the ties between the countries and how they've developed in such a short time. Uh, it was all very sort of good, positive atmosphere. And the same after that, Lapid met with the foreign minister. We were obviously not in the meeting, the reporters. We spoke to Lapid about it afterwards. Um, but they did sign a trade agreement. Um, it's, it's an economic and trade cooperation agreement, it's called. Um, it's a five-year agreement meant to sort of open up prospects for imports and exports between the two countries. Um, and, you know, Lapid said, you know, he's a former finance minister. He was Israel's finance minister for about a year and a half. And he said it's very unusual to see the amount of economic agreements that are signed between Israel and the UAE in such a short time. Um, and that that is a really big emphasis here. So that's, you know, at least publicly, that's what they're talking about. And that's what they're trying to emphasize. Um, you know, I think that it's safe to say that privately there are other things coming up. Lapid hinted at it a little bit. Um, and it's it's in my coverage on JPO, so it's not like a big secret, but he hinted that they talked about regional issues, which, you know, let's face it, regional issues are Iran, talked about U.S. involvement in the region um, and things like that. How, if at all, have the crises in Jerusalem surrounding Sheikh Jarrah, Silwan and the Temple Mount, as well as last month's conflict with Hamas, factored into Lapid's interactions with Arab state officials? So it's an interesting thing. Again, we Israeli journalists have tried to push those questions and both Lapid and Emirati officials we talked to didn't, didn't really want to talk about the Emirati officials said, you know, we're here to talk about bilateral ties between our countries. And Lapid also said, like, the Palestinians did not really come up in the meeting. Um, last month, during the, you know, operation uh, between Israel and Gaza, um, the UAE put out a critical but very cautious statement. And so Bahrain's statement was like a little bit sharper. Um, but the UAE, you know, on the one hand, you know, said they, they want peace. Um, they don't want there to be more fatalities. But they were sort of very cautious about, I would say, laying blame, um, even less so than some Western countries, not, not the U.S., but some Western countries. Um, and it was interesting. And I think that Israel sort of appreciated that. Um, 
in the end, this this is um this is my second time in the UAE actually since that operation. So I, I actually went twice this month for work, and people, you know, said it's it's difficult. And a lot of Emiratis, when I talk to people who, you know, are doing business with Israelis and things like that, and are you know not government officials, they don't necessarily understand. They didn't really understand the Israeli side of what's going on, but they were interested to hear it. Um, I think that it's a little bit more difficult in the sense of, of you know, the street and public opinion, but that overall, um, especially in the UAE, the the ties have really withstood that test. In Bahrain, they have as well, even though they have a much more complicated situation because the, the king is Sunni and they have a Shiite majority. Um, and that's much more critical of the relations with Israel. And so that was a little bit more difficult. Uh, but just today, the king officially appointed an ambassador to Israel. So things are really back on track there as well. Netanyahu was a known quantity in the Middle East. How are regional leaders responding to the new Israeli government? So, again, you know, I was, uh, I, when I was here earlier this month, um, the people I was meeting with were less government officials and more business people. And they were all just like, how could you get rid of Netanyahu? He's so wonderful. Um, and well, what's it going to be like without Netanyahu? And I think, um, you know, again, business ties are very key to this relationship right now. And I think that these people see Netanyahu only through the sphere of the Abraham Accords and also sort of as this tough guy who stands up for Iran. And, and you know, I have to explain to him that there's a broader range of everyday issues for Israelis. Um, you know, whether it's the corruption accusations, whether it's the economy, or just the political instability that Israel went through the last few years that, you know, Israelis don't only look at it through that narrow prism that the Emiratis see him through. Um, I think that this new government is handling it very well. I think, you know, Lapid being here two weeks and one day after he was sworn in just shows what a priority it is. And I think that the the government of the, v, of the UAE sort of paid back in kind by making this like a very VIP fancy, like really honoring him on the trip. Um, you know, Bennett, has, Prime Minister Bennett has also shown, I think, his emphasis on this issue because um, his diplomatic advisor that he appointed is an expert in the Middle East. And that's not usually who gets chosen for that kind of role. Um, but she it's also the first woman in the job. Her name is Shimrit Meir, and she was a columnist on Arab affairs, um, most recently in Yediyat Akhronot. Um, so it shows also that, you know, those are the ties that are sort of most important to him um, beyond the U.S., which is, of course, going to be the most important for anyone. Let's turn to the subject of the Iran nuclear agreement. Both Prime Minister Bennett and Foreign Minister Lapid oppose the deal, but they have said they want to consult with the Biden administration on its approach to Tehran. How does this compare with the strategy adopted by former Prime Minister Netanyahu? So Netanyahu's strategy was sort of stonewalling. He did not want to talk about it at all. He felt that if he talked about the details of the deal, that he would be basically legitimizing it. And if Israel was trying to sort of mitigate the damage of the deal in any way, then that would be like Israel okaying the deal, and he didn't want to do that at all. Um, this government, again, is looking at it as we're not going to stop the U.S. from returning to the deal, and therefore we should make it you know, we have to make the best of a bad situation. And so that's what the government's doing. They've already sent experts to Washington. Um, and we'll see where that takes us moving forward. But the Biden administration has indicated that it wants to listen to what Israel has to say. 
And I guess um, that there's already been communication, I believe, from Lapide that uh, the preference when you met with Blinken, I'm pretty sure this came up in their meeting, that they want to keep any disagreements more private as opposed to public, which is certainly something that Netanyahu did, correct? Right. So that was the Israeli policy over many years, including Netanyahu's early years in office. Um, and then, you know, President Obama famously said in the meeting with uh, Jewish organization leaders that he wants there to be more daylight. And then that was something that Israel sort of had to deal with. Um, and in the end, Netanyahu dealt with it by doing the same thing with gusto, um, you know, speaking before both houses of Congress against Obama's policies. But um, I think Lapid even more so than Bennett, but Lapid and Bennett want to sort of bring U.S.-Israel relations back on track to what it was before. Um, you know, Obama and Netanyahu were on a collision course and try to be as bipartisan as possible, try to show a very, very strong U.S.-Israel alliance. And, and that includes having keeping disagreements behind closed doors when possible. So you touched on this, but could you talk a little bit further about what you think Bennett and Lapid want to accomplish in terms of bipartisanship in the U.S.-Israel relationship and relations between Israel and the American Jewish community? Yeah, I mean, um, as far as bipartisanship is concerned in the U.S., I think that, you know, if, if Israel as a partisan football is not good it's just not good for Israel to be in that situation because there's, you know, you know, sometimes there's a Democratic president, sometimes there's a Republican, sometimes one party, you know, has a majority in Congress, sometimes the other party does. And, you know, Israel relies on the U.S. It's, you know, a huge strategic asset that we have such a great alliance with the U.S. And therefore, Israel needs to be in a situation where it can rely on the U.S. and where its fate doesn't depend so strongly on which party, you know, is in power at the moment. Um, and so that I think ultimately is the goal. When it comes to U.S. Jewry, I think that there's, um, you know, an, an, a sort of, I guess, ideological factor, the, the idea that, you know, all Jews are, are brothers, we're sort of one big family. And even when we disagree, we should feel connected to one another. Um, and I think that, you know, Lapine and Bennett believe that and they want to sort of reinforce that. Um, and it's not just about, you know, sort of political power or things like that. I want to remind our audience, uh, please, uh, if you have a question, please type it in the Q&A box so that we can get to your question later on during this call. Uh, Lahav, in what ways have Netanyahu's actions since leaving office and some Republicans' personal affinity for the foreign former prime minister, complicated the Bennett-Lapid government's attempts to make inroads in Washington? I don't think it's actually complicated anything, but I think that, well, back up. So Netanyahu has, has tweeted and said all kinds of things that in theory would make things difficult for Bennett and Lapid, or it's, it almost seems like he's trying to make things difficult for them, um, whether he's saying that, you know, Lapid's agreement to have no surprises uh, with the U.S., that, that the U.S. and Israel should keep each other up to date on security issues like relating to Iran, among others. Um, Netanyahu said that's endangering national security and that it's going to limit Israel from carrying out operations against Iran. Um, and, and in that sort of speech that Netanyahu gave in those remarks, he said that um, President Biden and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin had asked him, you know, for there to be no surprises. 
um, sort of revealing things from conversations with them that, that had not been made public before. Um, you know, and he also talked about, he sort of compared the U.S. returning to the Iran deal to uh, FDR not bombing the train tracks to Auschwitz. So really harsh things that he is saying. Um, I don't think, I think his goal is to get in Lapid and Bennett's way. I don't actually think it's going to work. I think that the Biden administration really wants to be supportive of this government and to make in Israel and to help it work and that they're treating it. And so are Bennett and Lapid sort of, they're treating Netanyahu as background noise. I don't think it's really going to get in the way. Now, there are some Republicans who, you know, they have a strong affinity for Netanyahu and they've written all kinds of letters of support to him and things like that. I've not heard any Republicans say, you know, we like Netanyahu so much, we're not talking to Bennett. Um, there's, there was an example, I know there was a, an advisor to Bennett who sort of complained to me about Ted Cruz, where, um, there was some sort of discussion in Congress about two-state solution. And then Ted Cruz said, well, the current Israeli prime minister doesn't support a two-state solution. He brought in all these quotes from the Sally Bennett against a two-state solution. And the Bennett advisor said, like, it's really not helpful to us right now. Like, yes, Bennett opposes a two-state solution, but like, maybe we shouldn't be talking about that right now. Yeah. So Cruz that's something else. He offered an amendment to, to take out uh, language uh, that the two-state solution is U.S. policy, which it has been, of course, for decades, and right. that, that voted down. But I mean, um, a little bit more about Netanyahu, though, because I understand that he is asking or perhaps demanding of Likud members to continue to refer to him as prime minister. And of course he hosted I think that was a joke. His residence. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, I think that comment where Netanyahu said like you, that was a joke. Um, okay. The Shas leader, Arya Derry called him prime minister. And then he was like, Oh yes, you should keep calling me prime minister. You should call me your excellency. I think that he was like, uh, I think it was in jest. Um, they do generally call him former prime minister as opposed to opposition leader in their press releases. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, and then, then the other thing about his residence. So it was unclear when he was going to leave his residence. There's nothing like written into law when exactly he has to leave. And Nikki Haley was in Israel the day the new government was sworn in. Um, and, and yes, and he hosted Nikki Haley and Pastor John Hagee, the head of Christians United for Israel, in the prime minister's residence. And then that was the point where people said, like, there was a little bit of a public uproar where they people said, like, you know, Bennett needs to do something about this. Um, so they came to an agreement that he would leave July 10th which is basically a month after the new government was sworn On the flip side, does the Bennett-Lapid government have a strategy to address the small but vocal wing of the Democratic Party that is more harshly critical of Israel? I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure that there's really almost anything Israel could do to you know, sort of placate a certain wing of the Democratic Party that I think we're talking about, um, you know, short of surrendering everything all at once. And even that, I'm not sure (laughs) would would satisfy some of them. Um, I don't think that the plan is trying to really address those people specifically. I think that the plan is to try to get relations um, with the majority of the Democratic Party back on track. Okay, I'm going to turn to audience questions. We we have 
several, but I also want to encourage if, if anybody does want to ask a question, please feel free to type one into the Q&A box. So I'm going to start with Peter Kessel. Does this government have any influence at all with the American foreign policy? The last decision Israel made concerning American foreign policy was not allowing Omar and Talib into Israel. Israel has zero influence. Of course, the U.S. will, op of course, the U.S. will open the Palestinian consulate in Jerusalem. What do you think? Um, I think it's like, look, first of all, Israel, on that specific issue of opening the consulate in Jerusalem, Israel does have the influence because Israel has to approve it. You can't just open a consulate in someone else's country without their permission. Um, so ultimately, Israel, you know, has that influence because Israel can withhold permission and, and it might, I mean, I think that it has to be a conversation. Um, and I think it is a conversation that they're already having. So I, I don't know where it's ultimately going to end up. I think there's a good chance that Israel will let the U.S. do it. Um, but certainly on that issue, I mean, you know, Israel has the final say. Um, I also don't think that, it, it, you know, the, the Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib was actually the last thing Israel had to do with um, U.S. foreign policy. Um, so I'm not really sure. But I, I think the Biden administration is willing to hear Israel out. Uh, obviously, you know, uh, Bill Clinton once said about, you know, Netanyahu, uh, you know, who's the effing superpower here, right? So look, the U.S. is the superpower, right? But, but the U.S. views Israel as an important ally in the Middle East and therefore wants to hear Israel out on different things, on regional things. You know, Israel also is an asset to the U.S. on intelligence matters and other important matters in the region. Um, and that's where Israel's influence is. Does it mean that Israel bosses the U.S. around? No, but it means that Israel is a, a valued voice, you know, has a seat at the table on regional matters. Speaking of consulate, um, and of course, what we're talking about is reopening the consulate because there was a consulate yes. general in West Jerusalem for many, many years on Oglone Street. Um, so it's but importantly, in the interim, uh, Jerusalem was recognized as Israel's capital. Correct. And the embassy was moved to Jerusalem and, you know, that the consular activities were absorbed into that embassy. Um, Eva Selgman Kennard asked, would the U.S. think of opening a consulate in Ramallah? So there are a lot of countries that have consulates or, you know, even they call them embassies uh, in Ramallah. And I think that that's what... Israel would prefer either Ramallah or like Abu Dis, which is like technically Jerusalem, but is sort of far out there. Um, it's sort of part of Jerusalem that people that that a lot of people would think could be part of a future Palestinian state, you know, sort of outside of the um, separation barrier and things like that. Um, yeah, so I do think that that's what Israel would prefer. Again, I, I don't know where it's going to go in the end, but um, you know, any, I think certainly that would be a better option as far as Israel's concerned, dealing with, you know, sovereignty issues in Jerusalem. And to that end, we have a question from Roberta Ann Kapilovich. What are Anthony Blinken's views on a negotiated peace settlement between Palestinians and Israelis? Um, I think his view is that he would like one to happen, um, but he's also said and sort of recognized that this doesn't look like it's a time when a breakthrough is likely to happen. Um, you know, if I could add, add my two cents there, you know, we do have a new government in Israel that I think is more willing to have a two-state solution, not Prime Minister Bennett, but most of the other parts of this new government are for a two-state solution. 
Um, that being said, the Palestinian Authority leadership right now is very weak um, and Hamas is growing in strength. Um, and, you know, even even when the Hamas wasn't as strong just a couple of years ago, there wasn't such great will on the Palestinian side to even enter negotiations. Um, so there's a long way to go. Um, and Lincoln has acknowledged that. So turning to the relationship between uh, Lapid and Bennett, first uh, we have a question uh, What about their personal relationship. Do you think Bennett and Lapid like and respect each other and does that matter? And let me ask another question from Fee Issa. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. The power sharing agreement between Bennett and Lapid is complicated enough for Israelis to deal with. On the foreign policy front, how is this power sharing uh, going to work with Lapid and Bennett speaking with foreign governments on difficult issues? Are there foreign policy differences between Lapid and Bennett? How are they working that out if they are? Okay, well, it's your lucky day because we uh, asked Lapid some of these questions in our briefing to him today. Um, first of all, so um, Lapid and Bennett have known each other for over a decade and have been in politics they entered politics at the same time before the 2013 election. Um, and after that election, they had what was called the Alliance of Brothers, um, or I, I used to call it bros, because it's really, they mean bros. Um, but they would call each other, because Bennett had this thing back then where he would call everyone his bro, which is like a very like army way of talking to people. Um, and Right, exactly, Achi. So they had the... the the uh, alliance of the bros, uh, which was basically they sort of cornered Netanyahu into forming a coalition that Netanyahu didn't want, which included them, Bennett and Lapid, and did not include the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox parties. Um, so this was 2013 to 2015. And um, they worked pretty well together for those couple of years that they were in a coalition together. Um, and what Lapid said today is, you know, that he considers Bennett to be his friend. He trusts Bennett. They think they work very well together. Um, I've heard similar things, not, not from Bennett himself. I've not had the chance to talk to him in the last two weeks, but from some of his closest advisors that they're working really well, that they talk every day, they're very well coordinated. Um, so I think that that's, that's working out well in that respect. Um, as far as the rotation agreement is concerned, um, first of all, Lapid said today, um, you know, because we sort of asked him, like, what does it mean that you're alternate prime minister? Like, are you doing anything with that? And he said, right now, he's focused on doing his job of being foreign minister for the next two years. You know, and, and that's what's important, because Israel needs a foreign minister focused on foreign policy. Excuse me. Now, what's different now between when Netanyahu was prime minister is that Netanyahu really ran and just completely micromanaged Israel's foreign policy. Even when someone else was foreign minister, Netanyahu overshadowed that person. Bennett is not super interested in foreign policy. This is something that, you know, some of his people who advise him on foreign policy have said, domestic issues are number one for him. He's also very interested in security issues. And so he recognizes the importance of foreign policy to Israel's security, also to Israel's economy, because he comes from the business sector. Um, but it, it's not his priority, and he's happy to let Lapid sort of take the lead on most things. Now, as Israel's prime minister, he's still going to have to do foreign policy things. He's probably going to the White House this summer. Um, you know, he's fielded calls from leaders all around the world. 
since becoming prime minister, but, um, you know, Lapid is really going to be the full-time foreign minister um, in a way that foreign ministers have not been for the past decade. So we have a question from Brian Burke who asks, do you think the mere presence of centrist and left-wing parties in the government coalition, as well as a centrist Lapid as foreign minister, will make any kind of positive impact on Israel's international relations with both traditional and new allies and partners? Um, so yes and no. I think that there are some people, like the Biden administration, that will have an easier time working with Yair Lapid and with this new government than they did with Netanyahu. I think there are other countries and groups of people um, who, you know, unless the Israel will suddenly be run by, I don't know, Jewish Voice for Peace. Um, they're they're not going to change your mind, and that's just the way it is. Um, you know, the just to to give a, an example, like um, in Ireland, like the public opinion and the political spectrum overwhelmingly is very very critical of Israel, and I don't think any sort of feasible government action in the near future is going to change the fact that they are constantly pushing the EU to, t- to pressure Israel in all different ways. Um, so, so it's a mix. Uh, Gabriel Shashinsky asks, is the Biden administration wary about how potentially fragile the Bennett-Lapid coalition is and how the coalition working to strengthen the relation, and how is the coalition working to strengthen the relationship between Israel and the U.S. Jewish diaspora? So I think that, yes, the Biden administration is worried about the fragility of this coalition, and it's trying not to get in the way and be a stumbling block in any way. Um, I think they're trying to be very friendly. Um, They're, as I had said before, they're treating all of the Netanyahu's talk as sort of background noise and not letting it drive a wedge, Um, you know, because they don't want to be a factor if this government ends up falling. They want to strengthen it. Um, how is this government trying to strengthen relations with um, U.S. Jewry? First of all, um, I have to say that I think they picked a truly excellent diaspora affairs minister, um, Nachman Shai, of the Labor Party. I think he's someone who has many years of experience in the field. He happened to have lived in America just last year. Um, he was a, a visiting professor at Emory. Um, you know, speaks English well. I mean, America is not the only diaspora, but it is the biggest one. Um, and just someone who really understands what's going on in this area. So I'm hopeful about that. It's not just like some random person that they stuck in the ministry, which happens sometimes. Um, one thing that the this government plans to do that I think appeals to a lot of American Jewry, um, or at least uh, American Jewry that's very involved in Israel things, um, is that it plans to revive the Kotel Compromise to... Um, sort of renovate and expand the area of the Western Wall that would allow for egalitarian prayer services. Um, And so conservative and reformed Jews would be able to have bar and bat mitzvahs at the Kotel uh, with their entire family's presence. And, you know, that was a a big controversial thing, um, you know, five, six years ago. Um, And now it's back on the agenda. And I think that there's political will in this government to make that happen. Jonah Nagy, one of our IPF Atid leaders, uh, notes that last week, Israeli journalist Barak Ravid reported that Prime Minister Bennett has been meeting with Israeli author Micah Goodman, author of Catch 67, and indicated that although Bennett is not drastically shifting to a two-state solution, 
He's considering some of the incremental steps Goodman has suggested. What do you know or make of this? Um, I think it fits very well with a lot of what Bennett advocated when he entered politics. Um, He had um, this plan that Israel, uh, his original plan was that Israel would annex all of Area C. That obviously is not going to happen with this government, nor with the administration in Washington. But um, it would go along with um, increased economic cooperation with the Palestinians to improve the Palestinians' quality of life. Um, and that uh, lines up with a lot of what uh, Micha Goodman calls for in his book. Um, so it doesn't surprise me. Um, I also, uh, you know, even before that Barack Ravid report, Bennett had started using the phrase of uh, reducing the conflict, which is a phrase that Micha Goodman uses in his book. Um, actually, I don't know how it's translated into English, so it might be a different phrase in English, but that's my translation from Hebrew for it. Um, And uh, so, you know, it it was pretty clear that he had read that book or was talking to Micha Goodman. um, And and it makes sense because that book doesn't necessarily call for a two-state solution. I think it leaves the door open to it, but it sort of says that, like, you know, they recognize the sort of intractability of the situation. Um, so Avi Poster, just kind of, there's a follow-up to what you're talking about. Um, Bennett has said in the past that strengthening the West Bank economically would be a mechanism for maintaining peace. Thoughts on him doing that? Um, I think that the, I think that he's in favor of it. In theory, Netanyahu was in favor of it too. And then it was sort of on and off over the years. Um, but I think that he has a coalition that would favor that. So it could happen. Um, I think that the U.S. also is looking for steps like that, um, that along with what I had said before, where Blinken said, you know, sort of doesn't see the chance for there to be a breakthrough between Israel and Palestinians in the coming years. Um, Lincoln has also talked about sort of taking steps to improve the situation for the Palestinians. And so I think that that's what those steps would be. Um, whereas, you know, I think they also expect Israel to not take steps when it comes to settlements, as in not to build more. Speaking yeah. of settlements, I want to. Uh, we have a couple of questions about Evyatar. Uh, for those who okay. may not be familiar, Evyatar is an illegal outpost, quite developed actually, in deep into the West Bank. And uh, Benny Gantz has indicated he didn't want to forcibly evict people, but wants to reach a deal on, on evicting the settlers until the status of Evyatar can be determined one way or the other. So uh, we have a question from our policy director, Michael Coppolo. Do you anticipate the Evyatar situation becoming a foreign policy issue? And how is Lapid addressing it while overseas? Um, and let me just see, there was another question about Evyatar, but anyway, uh, if you could just touch on that. Uh, well, what do you make of the arrangement taking place um, in on Evyatar? It seems the left wing of the coalition is keeping mostly quiet. Why do you think they're holding the line and how long can the situation persist? That comes from our uh, assistant deputy director of development uh, uh, communications, uh, Evan Gosling. So talking to Lapid today, it seemed like he really didn't want to touch that issue with a 10-foot pole. Um, As far as it becoming a foreign policy issue, he said it didn't come up in his meetings this week. Um, But his position was that, you know, things that are illegal need to be taken down. But if there's a way to do it that is sort of 
peaceful and coming to some sort of agreement with the people living there on, on how to do it, then that's fine with him. In other words, you know, it's the government's job to enforce the law. So, you know, the law has to be kept, but it doesn't mean that the law has to be kept, you know, uh, violently. Um, and so that's why, at least in Yeshatid, they're sort of waiting and allowing negotiations to take place. Um, to the left of them, labor, merits, I, I think that their patience will, will, you know, end pretty soon. I think this is something that the government's going to have to reach a decision in the next couple of weeks. So I guess we should just stay tuned. Yeah. Um, switching gears, we have a question from Dr. Karam Abbas from Islamabad. Do you foresee any development between Saudi-Iran rapprochement under Iraq's mediation? And how would Israel's new government view this development? I'm really not my area of expertise. So I, I, I don't have a good answer to that question. Um, you know, I, I think that Israel sees Saudi as a, you know, unofficial secret, but still someone that's on the same side as Israel uh, countering Iran. Um, and so if there was some sort of rapprochement, like on the one hand, it's not that Israel's looking for war to happen. But um, on the other hand, it would be a loss in the sense of I don't know, sharing intelligence, resources, um, encountering that threat, because the threat for Israel is not going to end just because it ends for Saudi. I'm going to switch gears again um, to Gaza. Uh, Shira Efron, who is our policy advisor in Israel, um, asked the following. The Israeli government said they conditioned facilitation of aid to Gaza beyond humanitarian aid until the remains of two soldiers. So they conditioned facilitation of aid beyond humanitarian until the remains of two soldiers and the two civilians held captive in Gaza are returned. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett was very passionate about this issue before becoming prime minister. Yet we're seeing reports of Qatari-funded fuel approved and more assistance going into Gaza in the next few days. What do you think will be the government's policy vis-a-vis -vis Gaza? And to what extent will it differ from Netanyahu's government? I'm very skeptical that there will be much of a change with this government. Um, you know, they... They're talking a lot about the, the captives um, and the missing soldiers in Gaza. Um, but it doesn't look like Hamas is budging on that issue. And at the same time, the whole world is sort of pressuring Israel to allow some sort of improvement in the humanitarian situation in Gaza, which I think is why the Qatari money is coming in. Um, I, you know, I, I think the Qatari money just goes straight to Hamas and Hamas does whatever it wants sort of with that money. Um, fuel is different. Fuel is fuel. So, um, but if Qatari money goes in again, then Israel's really just repeating its mistakes of the last few years, you know, and, and the, the sort of UN based mechanism for rebuilding Gaza was, was far from perfect. Um, but at least there was something going on as opposed to, you know, Qatar just giving money to Hamas. Um, so, you know, th this is, this comes up in all of Lapid's meetings, um, and his conversations, especially with Blinken, it was one of the topics that we know they talked about. Um, so we'll see moving forward. I, I think that they're looking to base whatever new mechanism comes out on the UN mechanism that was after the 2014 Gaza operation. Um, how effective it'll be remains to be seen. 
Again, a different topic, Daniel Kordansky, please comment on the new government's relationships with Russia and China. I think it's still a bit too early to say. Um, you know, the I, I think that Israeli government officials have been overall kind of slow to realize what's going on with the U.S. and China and that they're, they're going to have to kind of choose and take a side. And it doesn't mean severing, you know, business relations between Israel and China, but it does mean taking a step back um, of, you know, allowing China to build major infrastructure projects, uh, you know, not letting China be involved in Israel's 5G networks, which that's that decision Israel made already last year. Um, but those are things that Israel is going to have to do. And those are things that the U.S. has been pressuring Israel to do. And at the end of the day, Israel is on the U.S. side. It's just they're very slow at realizing what they need to do to show it. Um, and, uh, but I, you know, so I, I think that Israel will move more in, in that direction of being, you know, doing these kinds of things to be more careful uh, with Chinese involvement and it's, and it's in its infrastructure and things like that. Uh, but it's very slow going. I have not heard any indications that it's some sort of big priority for this government. Um, when it comes to Russia, you know, Israel is in a situation where it has to have a good relationship with Russia, especially because of Syria, um, you know, and, and it's just its involvement in the Middle East. Um, and it's a, a, you know, Netanyahu had an excellent relationship with Putin, and that was just helpful to Israel diplomatically in general. Um, but it's not, it's not like the China relationship where they were involved in important infrastructure projects or even, you know, they're not like a major trade partner for Israel. And so um, Israel having friendly relations with Russia, like I sometimes hear like Americans who like resent that, but I just don't think that it, it'll, it has like this big impact in the way that people who talk about it that way. Um, see it. It, it, it's not, you know, like the relationship with the U S is so much closer and so much more impactful. Um, follow-up question on China, because you wrote an article about, uh, the vote to condemn China's treatment of Uyghurs and that, yes. that marks a shift in policy. Could you just touch on that, please? Yeah. So that, that was actually interesting. You know, I, I had just now commented more on the economic and the infrastructure, but, um, Lapid, I think, is is more uh, similar to the Biden administration. Um, he cares more about sort of human rights issues and liberal democracy and things like that on the on the world stage. Uh, and I think we're going to see more steps from the foreign ministry um, showing that, you know, as a priority of Lapid's. And so this was one of them that, you know, the the countries that Israel aligns itself with were, you know, introducing this statement condemning China's treatment of the Uyghurs, and Israel wanted to be on the right side, quote unquote. Um, and before Israel might have withheld just to not antagonize China. Um, but from what I, what I heard from diplomatic sources was just, you know, after Operation Guardian of the Walls, China was extremely anti-Israel, um, you know, not just introducing, trying to introduce things in the Security Council or cooperating with the introduction of things in the Security Council against Israel, but also just the state-sponsored media. Um, there were segments that were downright anti-Semitic. You could Google an article I wrote about a segment on, you know, Chinese state-sponsored news talking about um, American Jews having undue influence on the U.S. government and controlling all the banks and Hollywood. And that's why the U.S. supports Israel against the Palestinians. Like literally, it was just like open, clear anti-Semitism. 
Um, and so, you know, all these things, the government, you know, the, this person who's very close to Lapid said, why, so why should we, why should we care if they're angry that we condemn them, their treatment for the Uyghurs? Like, it's not, it's not like if we withheld, they would have been nicer to us. Um, so, you know, so Israel's doing the right thing. So back to East Jerusalem, because as we know, it was the, um, proposed or almost imminent evictions from Sheikh Jarrah that was one of the sparks that that lit the match of the latest conflict with Hamas. Um, that issue hasn't gone away. Um, so we've got a couple of questions. Gary Gilbert asks, how might the current government respond to a Supreme Court ruling either way regarding Sheikh Jarrah? And maybe you could talk about the anticipated timing, if you know when that decision might come down. And then in addition, how is the government preparing, if at all, for the fallout from a, from court decisions on Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan in its foreign relations? These are good questions. Um, I don't know when the court decision is going to be. And I truly hope this government is preparing for the fallout because I think there will be a fallout. Um, but I think that they're just, they're getting their f- footing on a lot of things. And I'm not entirely sure where they've come down on that. Um, I think that that's something that we're just going to have to see moving forward. Um, as far as what the government would do about the court order is, I think that um, rule of law is very important to this. And it's this government and it's a distinction that they're drawing compared to Netanyahu, which was extremely critical of the courts. And so I think that they would, you know, fulfill the court order, um, you know, unless they could find some way to appeal it. But I don't, I don't see this government sort of appealing the court order um, because it would like, uh, what would, what would the grounds be? Right. Like as far as the government is concerned, the government isn't actually a party to the court case. It's a private property dispute Now we know it has broader implications, but the government is not like actually a party. So I'm not really sure legally what, what the recourse would be if they wanted to appeal it. Um, So I I think that the government's just going to do what the court says. Whereas, if Netanyahu was prime minister, he might have just waited a really long time, like he did, like he has done he lived for or had done for like five years on Khan al-Akhmar, which is this like Bedouin encampment right outside um, a major Israeli settlement that the court said should be removed. Speaking of the court, uh, Milton Sherman asks if you expect that the new government will take any steps to diminish the power of the Supreme Court or has it agreed to avoid addressing that issue? You might want to touch on Ayala Chakhed in this as well. Well, Ayala Chakhed right now is interior minister. She's not justice minister. She might be in two years, but we don't know. We know I, I have my doubts that the government will last long enough for all these rotation things to happen. Um, and Gidon Saar is justice minister now. He is also a critic of judicial activism, uh, like Chakhed. Um, and I mean, you know, let's back up a second. Shaked was was justice minister for four years, and I don't think she actually did anything that weakened the Supreme Court. She appointed conservative judges, but that didn't she didn't change anything as far as the court standing in Israeli society. So Saar, I think, is is similar to Shaked in his view, in his views. He's conservative. Um, he's a critic of judicial activism. Um, what he wants to do, which is something that Chakhed would have supported at the time um, to some, at some level, is he wants to pass a basic law, which um, are supposed to be the building blocks of a constitution in Israel, that would establish the relations between the judiciary and the other branches of government. 
um, you know, under what circumstances can the court overturn a law? Can the Knesset pass that law again if the court overturns it? Things like that. Um, so that may or may not happen. Um, I think it will be very difficult with this coalition, especially because the opposition does not want to cooperate with the right wing of the coalition um, at this point. The other thing that he wants to do that is written into the coalition agreement um, is that he wants to split the role of the attorney general in Israel because the attorney general is like also the prosecution in Israel. Um, and whereas in a lot of other countries, it's sort of two different roles. Um, and so he wants to do that. Um, but the coalition agreement is between him and Yeshatid. It's not between him and all the other parties. So I think really any changes he wants to make will be very difficult in this coalition. Alan Alter has a separate question about Ra'am. What impact is the Ra'am party having at this early stage on the new coalition and what future influence do you expect them to have on Bennett and Lapid? Um, I mean, look, Ram is the, in a way, like any other party, they sort of have a final say because this the majority is so narrow that the coalition needs Ram to get things done. Um, so right now, there's uh, a the renewal of a law that um, prohibits prohibits maybe isn't the right word, but if if an Israeli citizen marries a Palestinian, then that Palestinian cannot get doesn't have a path to citizenship. Um, and that's been around since the second intifada and, um, it gets renewed every year, I believe, and it's up for renewal and this coalition cannot get it done because Ram is opposed to it. So are a few other Knesset members, um, from labor and merits, um, and the coalition, even though, you know, Likud and the Haredi parties and, you know, Smutrich, they all voted in favor of this every other year when they were when they were the coalition. They refused to vote in favor of it now because they don't want to help this coalition. And then they came to some sort of compromise that they'll agree to a two month extension. Um, but the you know, the, the diversity of this coalition is sort of holding this bill up. So that's the immediate impact. And speaking of the coalition, one of the things they need to do is uh, the government needs to pass the budget. As you know, Israel hasn't had a budget in, what is it, three years, I think. And what do you see as some of the potential minefields for the coalition as it moves into uh, budget passing territory? I mean, I think the most obvious minefield is that everybody is going to want a lot of money for their own ministries. And Israel has a huge deficit and just you know, economic issues due to COVID and they're going to have to overcome that because they can't just, you know, print cash and hand it out to every ministry. Um, I think that there's very different sort of economic views within this coalition. You have the Labour Party, which is, and Merits, which are sort of, you know, the Labour, the, the Labour Party, you just call them a social Democrat party, but, um, but Merits is even further the left than that. And then you have um, Naftali Bennett, who is very, very capitalist, you know? And then, so you have a a broad range here and they're going to have to come together and figure out um, not only how are they going to pass a budget, but to pass a budget that will help revive Israel's economy. So that'll be a huge challenge, right? Yeah, yeah. By the way, Lahav, uh, one of our audience members says you should be the government spokesperson. (laughs) I don't know if if anyone has approached you about that position, but um, if you ever want to quit your day job... (laughs) (laughs) 
do that instead. Um, I could I could reveal that uh, years ago, years ago, I was asked to interview for that job. And in the end, they hired someone who then got fired for sexual harassment. So I don't know, maybe they should have hired me. Come back to you. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I stayed in journalism in the end. So no well, regrets. <laughs> how long are you going to be in Abu Dhabi? Is the, is the visit over? Or is he still, uh, does he still have more meetings to, to go? Um, Lapid has, uh, another sort of, I guess it's, it's like a 30 hour trip in total. So he has most of tomorrow left. Um, we're going to go to Dubai and he's going to dedicate the Israeli consulate in Dubai. And he's going to visit the Israeli pavilion at Expo 2020, which is like this huge world exhibition, um, that's taking place in Dubai in the fall. And Israel has put a lot into its pavilion. So um, I'm actually excited to see that. I've seen pictures. It looks like it's pretty cool. So that's what we're doing tomorrow. Um, So last question. Uh, What do you think the biggest difference in these first weeks between a new government's foreign policy um, and Netanyahu's approach are? Sorry, can you repeat that? Okay. In these first two first weeks of the new government, what do you think the biggest Mm -hmm. differences between the new government's foreign policy and Netanyahu's approach to foreign policy? I think Iran is the big one. I, I think the fact that that Israel is already sending experts to discuss the right now their sanctions experts, so there's going to be more issues. The, the fact that Israel is willing to talk about the Iran deal is just a, a huge, huge change. Um, you know, contrary to everything Israel's done for the past eight years on this issue. Um, and uh, it is p- very possible that it, it will have, you know, a positive impact and make the Iran deal not as bad for Israel as the government thinks it is at the moment. I mean, there hopefully there could be improvements made. Um, certainly, look, it, there is a logic to what Netanyahu did, but it didn't bring results necessarily. So, um, you know, I'm trying a different approach. Maybe it will bring results. Well, Lahav, this has been just great. Unfortunately, it's all the time we have for today. So really, thank you for your time and for joining us uh, for really a, a fascinating discussion. Once again, I want to thank our supporters who are with us on today's call. Your generosity makes programs like this one possible. Again, if you have not yet done so, please consider making a contribution today at israelpolicyforum.org forward slash support. And again, as always, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod. Sign up to receive the weekly Coplo column in your email inbox and visit our website to access recordings of our previous briefings. Please stay tuned for an announcement regarding our next video briefing. I also want to wish all of our supporters here in the U.S. a happy Independence Day. So until then, thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you soon in Lahav Tadarabah. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.